The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Welcome to Foul Play. This series is called My Aunt and the Hitman. I'm your host, Wendy C, and this is episode 8, The End. In previous episodes, I've covered the murder of my aunt, Sharon Birchwood, and the investigation that led to the conviction of her ex-husband and the hitman that he hired. In this episode, I'll tell you what happened next. Analyse the 999 call that was received by the emergency services on the 7th of December 2007, And then I want to end the series by giving you my alternative theory as to why my Aunt Sharon was murdered. This is the final episode of the series, My Aunt and the Hitman. Let's start with what happened next. Everyone always wants to know where everybody is now. In December 2017, seven years into his 28 and a half year sentence, Paul Crine was admitted to hospital for an infection in his foot related to his diabetes. He contracted sepsis and died on the 20th of January 2018. He was 69 years old. On the 9th of September 2019, 10 years into his 32-year sentence, George Birchwood was found dead in his cell at Her Majesty's Prison, Wayland. He was 65 years old. An independent investigation said... The clinical reviewer found that the care Mr. Birchwood received at Wayland was not equivalent to that which he could have expected to receive in the community. Staff failed to put appropriate care plans in place to manage his heart disease, diabetes, and high blood pressure. Mr. Birchwood was found dead on his cell floor on the morning of September 9th. There were signs that he had been dead for some time. I am concerned that the member of staff who carried out the roll check two and a half hours before failed to see that Mr. Birchwood was lying face down on the cell floor. When staff did find him, they failed to call a medical emergency code, which led to a delay in emergency response. While it made no difference to the outcome for Mr. Birchwood, any delay in a future medical emergency could be critical. It is also disappointing that staff tried to resuscitate Mr. Birchwood when he'd clearly been dead for some time. This was inappropriate. My Aunt Lauren tells me how she felt when she found out that George had died. Couldn't happen to a nicer man. It was a wonderful moment. I was with a friend. I was staying in Essex with a friend. And they just got planning permission to do a house up. And I just, so she had a bottle of champagne ready. I just picked her up off the floor and flung around the room. And we had the champagne that evening. And it was just incredible. It was just such a relief to let go completely. And DC Deacon was also pleased. I was very friendly with his son to get information and to deal with him as as a a witness and did a lot of work with him. He then turned against me saying that I'd basically lied to him about certain things, about the evidence he was meant to give in court, that he wasn't supposed to give live evidence, but they, 
that he produced a particular exhibit. So it was a bit of a worry there that maybe that this Thai connection would come back and bite us. So I was a bit worried for a while, and then I just forgot about it. I thought, no, it's not going to happen. It's not. This is not the TV, but you never know, dear. It's real life, isn't it? But when George passed, I was glad. I think sometimes when we look into these cases and listen to these podcasts, we don't consider how the events really affect everyone involved. Not only the families of those who were murdered, but also the families of those who committed the crime and those professionals involved in helping to solve it. Emergency. Uh, yeah, I have a dead body here. Harriet's laying in Ashton, please. What's happened there? I don't know, but it looks very nasty. She's been strangled, I think. Do you live in this address or you visited this address? Uh, 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 it's my ex-wife. She's got a cord around her neck. Okay, alright, we're going to get police on their way and obviously we'll get ambulance as well to, to check. Um, She's cold. She's dead. What's her name? Sharon. And her surname? Birchwood. While researching for this series, I came across an amazing analysis of the 999 emergency call that George made when he found Sharon's body. It was written by analyst Chris Woodruff. I exchanged emails with Chris regarding the work he had done, and while he is happy for me to include it in this podcast, he is unable to narrate due to ill health. Therefore, Chris's analysis is being read by Shane Waters. The context is that an adult male has found his wife murdered. It is how he communicates his findings that is of interest to Chris. The first thing we note is that his call begins with a pause. This shows a need to stop and consider what to say during a high hormonal moment. It is unexpected. Next, within this pause, what is the first word his brain has informed his mouth to use? Yeah. That informal term of yes is to agree. With the recipient, in this case, the police. Yet there is nothing to agree upon. Police emergency. Uh, yeah, I have a dead body here. Ingratiation factor. This is a simple point of statement analysis. The caller is agreeing to a... Something not stated. B. Police. This one simple word should be noted as a possibility that the caller has a psychological need to be on the side of the good guys, which indicates to the contrary. We've only covered his pause and the word yeah, and already know there is sensitivity in the statement. Sensitivity indicator number one, pause. Sensitivity indicator number two, Ingratiation factor. Police emergency. Uh, yeah, I have a dead body here. Harriet's laying in Ashton, please. Let's get to the first sentence to continue. Uh, yeah, I have a dead body here. Harriet's laying in Ashton, please. Next, let's note that his wife is not dead, but he, the caller, subject, has an issue. He has a dead body there. This is to measure the concept with impact upon himself. He is inconvenienced for having to deal with a dead body here. Location? This is viewed as narcissistic. Was his wife an inconvenience? 
which has been historically used to end lives via murder. Let's listen to that again. We now need to consider social introductions, which tell us about the subject's perception of the relationship. Question: Who is dead? Answer: No one. The victim is not his wife. The victim is not even a person. The dead body is here, location, and the caller wants it dealt with. We now know, as the sensitivity indicators pile up, the caller has dehumanized the victim. There is a form of rationalizing, which leads to justifying. Murderers never really murder, in the language. This is why analysts look for victim blaming, justifying removal of the inconvenience. Is he going to say, "You must find my wife's killer in any form"? Objection: He is in shock. He is dissociating from the reality. Answer: Dead body indicates processing. Dissociation is a result of denial, not processing. That she is without a name, non-person, and a body, indicates the caller has long accepted her death. The investigator analyst should now consider premeditated murder by the suspect. Police emergency.、Uh, yeah, I have a dead body here. Harriet Lane in Ashton, please. The dead body is here, with specific detail. We now know. The location is not only the element of the sentence, but a priority for him. Come, remove it. Please is only given after the location. He agrees with police, the good guys, before anything is decided. And he devotes his words to location. What happened there? I don't know, but it looks very nasty. She's been strangled, I think. The best question, and the most natural, he denies knowledge, only to rebut, compare, minimize, with the word "but." Note what follows the word "but" as always important. Does his wife look like she suffered? No. It, she is it, and it looks nasty, as if he's calling a cleaning service for his location. I don't know, but it looks very nasty. She's been strangled, I think. Regarding the cause of death, it has now become she. The depersonalization of the victim is to indicate the most severely negative relationship, often found in domestic homicide or acute abuse. Question: What comes first, his speculation or her cause of death? Answer: The cause of death. I think, is secondary, which is added after the conclusion of the matter. He is showing us. I know how she died. Oops, I better qualify that with think, as an afterthought. Do you live at this address, or you visited this address? This is an unusual question. This is not a question I would have thought to ask, but is likely intuitively posed, due to the bizarre nature. Of his dehumanizing language of the victim. Do you live at this address, or you visited this address? 
Who is it? Remember, this is to process her death, and processing overcomes natural denial and shock, and takes place in time. It is interesting that the either-or question is not answered by him. This is an indicator of script. Script means he has rehearsed what was to be said, and it was interrupted by an unusual question. Script indicates the need to withhold information. He blurted out what he needed to say, even at the expense of the question. What did he reveal? He revealed an upgrade in their relationship. He shows a technical upgrade of the relationship. She was a dead body, and now she is his ex-wife, and she is now she in the context of having a cord around her neck, using psycholinguistic profiling. He likes her with a cord around her neck. She's got a cord around her neck. It is likely that one of his complaints about his victim in the marriage was about sex. She was cold. This is unnecessary information. He already reported a dead body. Heat dissipation is rapid. Time has elapsed. What's her name? Sharon. Unnecessary to ask but necessary for the incomplete social introduction, which has already indicated him in the murder. What's her name? Sharon. And her surname? Birchwood. Analysis conclusion? Deception indicated. The caller has guilty knowledge of his wife's murder. Analysts should not conclude he did it, but remain disciplined to that which we know. That he killed her is speculation. Guilty knowledge is the appropriate conclusion. Police would now take this cause analysis and focus everything upon the caller. He is the key to solving the case. Guilty knowledge means if he did not kill her, he knows who did, and he is pleased at the results. The profile of the caller, even from less than one minute of information, is of extreme animosity towards his wife in an acutely narcissistic deposition. He is inconvenienced at the nasty intrusion at his location while depersonalizing his victim. Isn't it amazing how much you can learn from such a short call? Did you all pick this up when you first listened to it? I know I didn't. And as this season draws to a close, we come to the why. Throughout this case, the motive has always been assumed to be money. But what if it wasn't? With both the perpetrators dead, I think we can discuss the why. Please remember that these are just my personal thoughts, and I will be withholding some names and details from this for fear of repercussions. As it turns out, George hung out with some rather unsavoury characters over in Thailand. It's something that concerned the police that worked on the case too. We know that George had money troubles. This would point towards him killing Sharon, as he was the sole beneficiary of her will. He would have inherited her half of the house and her insurance policy, in total a few hundred thousand pounds, enough to get him over his monetary worries and pay off the hitman, Paul Crine. But there has always been something in the back of my mind that has bugged me. 
Something that has made me believe there was more to this. Something that we were missing. And it was something that my aunt Lauren, Sharon's sister, said that made me decide to put my investigator's hat on and delve deeper. Following a telephone call in 2007 with Sharon, Lauren says... She had an issue with him earlier in the year. She'd found something in the February of that year that she really didn't like and she needed to confront him and she confronted him twice and she still wasn't happy so I have no idea what it was because she wouldn't tell me and nothing was ever found about what it was. This was just a few months before Sharon was murdered. So what did Sharon find out? What happened when she confronted George twice? Surely the timing of this and then Sharon's subsequent murder was not a coincidence. My dad, Sharon's older brother, has always had an issue with the method of death. The items used were an electrical cord, a small gold magnifying glass and duct tape, all items that were conceivably in Sharon's house already. Hardly a sophisticated kill kit. So did Crine mean to kill Sharon? Or did he just mean to threaten her, to scare her, to keep her quiet? And that leads me on to the hitman, Paul Crine. Why him? Why would George take the risk of flying someone over to kill Sharon? Why not hire a local hitman? And why did Crine take the risk of flying over to commit murder? Yes, he was being paid, but it was a huge risk. Unless he had a vested interest in Sharon's silence. Why would you let a hitman stay at your mum's house? This has always bugged me. Why put your mum at risk? Unless you know 100% that she is safe. So, off I went. I was on a mission. I spoke to people. I searched for connections. And one day, while talking to my Aunt Lauren, during one of our many long conversations about Sharon, I had that light bulb moment. I think I found it. The why. I want to start by taking you back to episode 5, The Hitman. Crine was accused of the murder of Robert Henry in 2003. The reports from this time named Crine's boss, who incidentally I will not be naming, but you can find it on the internet. I have done some research on this individual. Way before Henry was killed in 2003, this individual had set up and was one of the directors of a company in Thailand. One of the other directors was Robert Henry's girlfriend. Henry had invested a huge amount of money into this business. It has been reported that Crine and George met in 2005. However, I believe it was much, much earlier. In fact, on the 9th of March 2001, George became the director of a company in the UK with the same name as the company that Crine's boss and Henry were related to in Thailand. Coincidence? I think not. I believe that as far back as 2001, George knew Crine way before Henry's murder. I also believe he knew exactly what happened to Henry and why. So is this the missing link to why Sharon was murdered? We know that Crine was arrested and initially convicted of the murder of Henry. We also know that he was later released following an appeal and various key witnesses failing to turn up in court, such as Henry's girlfriend and, on one day, the prosecutor. And why was Henry murdered in the first place? The company that he had invested in owned a plane and ran a skydiving school in Thailand. 
However, on its maiden trip, on the 14th of January 2003, the aircraft crashed, injuring all seven on board. Fortunately, nobody died. Allegedly, Henry tried to pull his money out of the business after this, but was unsuccessful. And just nine months after the crash, Henry was dead. Reports say he was murdered for a business deal that had gone wrong. It seems impossible that George, who is a regular visitor to Thailand, did not know Henry, Crine, and the director of the Thai company. In fact, my aunt Lauren remembers Sharon mentioning Crine's boss's name on more than one occasion. So, did Sharon find out the truth about what happened to Henry? And therefore, did Crine have a vested interest in keeping her quiet by whatever means? Because if she went to the authorities, he might end up back in prison in Thailand. The final pieces of evidence I want to throw into the mix are some more handwritten documents that were found by the police as they searched through Sharon's belongings. Firstly, there is a document that my dad has a copy of from the police. We know it is dated around 2004, after Henry's murder, as it is written on the back of a letter that is addressed to Sharon, dated 2004. On this page is a very detailed account of my dad's business dealings over the years, his investments, what all of his children were doing financially, and how much capital it is believed my dad had access to. Why was Sharon researching my dad, her brother? Where did she find out all of the personal financial information that was on this page? He certainly never told her. And what was its purpose? George had asked my dad to get involved in some spurious business dealings overseas, but my dad had politely told him no and thought that was the end of it. But what if George and his associates had other ideas? Why did they need to know how much money my dad had? Were they planning on blackmailing him? Or worse? Were they going to use a threat against my dad to silence Sharon? Who knows? But my gut tells me my dad dodged a bullet. And then Lauren was shown some sheets of paper that the police found that really surprised her. On one of the sheets of paper, she'd written down the pros and cons of her future. And for the first time in her life of knowing him, she'd actually put her life without him in it at all. And that was the very first time that I'd ever seen that because she always included him. It didn't matter what the situation was, she always had him in her life and planned to have him in her life. There is no doubt in my mind that money was not the overriding factor for Sharon's murder. I am sure that she found out something incriminating about George, and that Crine also had a vested interest in silencing her. Money was just a bonus for both of them. At the end of the day, we will never know the full truth of what really happened in the lead-up to the death of my aunt Sharon Birchwood, and the real reason why she was murdered. But... We can all draw our own conclusions. With the 15th anniversary of Sharon's murder upon us, it was time to tell her story. And I would like to share a few comments about Sharon from her good friend Phyllis, myself, and my Sharon sister, Lauren. Oh, she would come and, you know, and she'd laugh against herself. She had a great sense of humour. She would. Any, any, you know, anything had happened and she would just laugh and laugh. It was wonderful. Sharon was a... Very outgoing, very warm, kind, friendly person with a great sense of humour and a great sense of other people, of social injustice, of the environment and basically wanted to make a better world. Sharon was always smiling, never complaining 
and she was so thoughtful, always thinking of others. She would send me little notes in the post or a random gift. I mean, don't get me wrong, sometimes I'd be thinking, why does she think I'd like this? But you know, it was nice to have somebody that would do that for you and just send you little things just because they were thinking of you. I still miss her a lot. Sharon was a huge character, larger than life. She was very secretive and kept her personal information personal. She was the life and soul of every party. Very flamboyant, very broad-minded. My nan's heart broke that day, back in December 2007, and she never fully recovered. She sadly passed away on the 1st of October 2020. Yes, the days get easier. The pain fades a little as time goes on. But the haunting memories of what happened never go away. I want to end by reading you the poem that I chose for Sharon's funeral, which is a short verse by David Harkins called She Is Gone. You can shed tears that she is gone, or you can smile because she has lived. You can close your eyes and pray that she will come back, or you can open your eyes and see all that she left. Your heart can be empty because you can't see her, or you can be full of the love that you shared. You can turn your back on tomorrow and live yesterday, or you can be happy for tomorrow because of yesterday. You can remember her and only that she is gone, or you can cherish her memory and let it live on. You can cry and close your mind, be empty and turn your back, or you can do what she would want. Smile, open your eyes, love and go on. Thank you for listening to this season of Foul Play, My Aunt and the Hitman. If you would like to learn more about the murder of Sharon Birchwood, there are two excellent documentaries available. Who Killed Sharon Birchwood? The Police Tapes with Susanna Reid and The Murder of Sharon Birchwood, Murder Detective with Graham Hill. They can both be found on YouTube. I would like to thank my family, especially my Aunt Lauren and my husband Pete, my friends who helped with voiceovers and support, DCI Maria Woodall, DS Simon Cork, DC Roger Deacon, Sharon's friend Phyllis, Mick and Brian from Peninsula Television, and of course the team at Foul Play and Arclight Media for making this series possible. This podcast was written and produced by me, Wendy C. It was edited by the amazing team at Foul Play and Arclight Media. Any profits made from this podcast will go to Friends of the Earth and Refuge, both charities that were close to my aunt Sharon's heart. <laughs>